Welcome to the Find Your Best Future podcast. This is the podcast that helps international families make great decisions when it comes to choosing university courses. Welcome to another episode of the Find Your Best Future podcast. Today we're taking on uh, uh, quite a lot, Jeremy. Uh, we're, we're taking a look at studying in the USA, is that right? We are indeed, Neil. Of course, the USA is a huge country, so there's really a lot of interesting things for us to talk about today. Yes, indeed. And uh, um, I think it still sits at number one for uh, international students uh, worldwide in terms of a study destination. Is that right? Very much so. I mean, it's a huge country with over 4,000 colleges and universities. Uh, so there's really a lot on offer for international students. OK, and what are we going to be covering today? Well, we're going to look at the, uh, the structure of higher education in the United States, uh, different categories of colleges and universities, the strengths of the U.S. higher education system, how to go about applying visas, working in the U.S., etc., etc. So we're really well, going to cover a lot today. Fantastic. So let's get to it. Okay, I think we probably ought to start off by taking a look at at the USA uh, as a whole. Um, you know, it's a country with uh, uh, enormous reach and uh, um, offers a huge amount to students. Is that right? That's correct, Neil. Yes. I mean, the USA is a country that everyone knows something about because of things like Hollywood, uh, movies, and pe people always have like, some sort of image of what, what the US is like, even if they've not been there. They might think it's exactly. a wealthy country and you get lots of fast food in huge portions. So you've got Silicon Valley, <laughs> parks, high-tech shopping malls, and the list goes on and on and on. It's a very diverse country as well, a very modern country. And so people have impressions about what to expect when they go to the United States. Indeed. And zooming in on education, of course, um, uh, they're famous for, well, some of the best universities in the world. Yes, you probably heard of the Ivy Leagues. Um, just as a point of clarification, the Ivy Leagues are Brown University, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth College, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, Princeton and Yale. But right. there are over 4,000 other colleges and universities in the US. So really, there's something for everybody. Indeed. And we'll be... Uh, uh, looking at the Ivy Leagues in detail in the different podcast episode, but they basically uh, uh, are sort of held there as, as, as the gold standard of university education, certainly North American style uh, North, uh, education, but, but they're not the only ones, are they, out there uh, that offer a really high quality education? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's certainly a place for everyone. I mean, there's just a limited number of Ivy Leagues, but there are many, many other top universities in the United States, which we're going to have a look at later on in this episode. Right. And, and how do these uh, places do in the QS rankings, uh, uh, Jeremy? Um, well, the QS worldwide rankings, there are usually six or seven uh, United States universities in the top 10. So that really speaks right. for itself. It certainly does. Um, let's take a look now at the uh, the the um, structure of higher education in the USA. Um, how is it organised? Well, it's useful to have an overview of how it's all structured because it, it's multi-layered, of course. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's over 4,000 colleges and universities. Uh, and in the United States, you would normally do a four-year bachelor programme. Uh, this could right. be done at a private university or a state university, or maybe you'd start at a community college. Right. And, and uh, community colleges are um, uh, often uh, quoted as a, as a top tip for, for many students, so especially those students who perhaps um, you know, haven't got the very best grades or, or financially can't afford uh, uh, to uh, head off to the um, highest level universities straight away. Let's drill in a little bit uh, into the community college. What is it exactly? Uh, you make a very good point there, Neil. Uh, I think community colleges are perhaps not so well known outside the US. A lot of international right. students either don't know about them or don't consider them. But the community college offers a two-year program. 
and students receive a certificate or an associate degree. And then okay. students often transfer to a university for a further two years of study and thus graduate with a bachelor's degree. Now, community okay. colleges are exactly that. They serve their local community and the majority of students will be local. However, some community colleges are actively looking to recruit international students. Right. Um, but as you rightly mentioned, the big advantage is the price tag, which we'll have a look at in just a moment. Uh, you'll be paying substantially less for those first two years of your four year degree. Um, this assumes, of course, that you're going to go on and complete a bachelor's degree. So you have right. to look at the cost of your bachelor's degree as a, a four year price ticket. And how are you going to split it up is really what we're talking about here. Um, when I was sort of doing a bit of background research for this episode, I, I was curious to know about community colleges. I mean, how many, where the cheapest ones are, etc. And I found a very interesting website called 100 Cheapest Community Colleges. So uh, if you're interested, listener, in finding out more, then go and check out that 100 Cheapest Community Colleges. Um, but just to give you a little and heads indeed, we up. May, we may actually choose yeah. to um, do, a, do another episode around these in detail because they, uh, they yeah. uh, do offer a real opportunity. You mentioned that uh, California is particularly well represented. Yes, it is. Um, I was having a look at one particular community college. It's called Foothill and De Anza Community College. It's just outside right. San Francisco. And they actually came to visit me at my school in Vienna. They're actively wow. seeking to recruit internationally, which is interesting dynamic because many university or community colleges actually don't really reach out for international students. But there are certainly an increasing number that do. But this particular community college, um, the tuition fees were approximately eight and a half thousand dollars a year. And then on top of that, um, they had health insurance coming in about 1700 housing and food about 13, between 13 and 1400 So, so 23 to $24,000 a year, which compares very competitively with many other places you could potentially go to in the US. Indeed. Um, I mean, you're looking at probably uh, half the price uh, uh, compared with... Um, many, many courses in in uh, other universities, is that right? Certainly in the private universities, yes. Um, you, know, you mentioned, Neil, j just now that there are many community colleges in the state of California, but there are other states which are also well represented and are, are actively looking to recruit internationally. There are community colleges in, in Washington State, for example, Texas, New York State, Massachusetts, Florida in okay. particular. Uh, but of course, there are community colleges in each and every state in the USA. It's just a question right, of shopping you, around and finding a good fit for yourself. And you mentioned um, that community colleges are often linked to the state university. Um, what are state universities exactly? Well, the state universities are funded, at least in part, by um, taxpayers' money. Um, so, of course, every state has its uh, state universities. Uh, so students will, if they go to a state university, graduate with a bachelor's degree again after four years. And you may then decide to continue on to postgraduate study. Now, the interesting thing about state universities is there are basically two levels of tuition fees. There's what right. they call in-state tuition. And this particular price tag is for people who have residency in that particular state because they will be taxpayers in that state and therefore they are, of course, funding the state university system, hence their special deal on tuition fees. Now, for most international students listening to this, um, you will be uh, categorized as out of state. Um, right. So if you're, an if you're an American citizen, let's say, for example, you want to go to Michigan State, if you're an American citizen resident in Michigan, then you will qualify for in-state tuition. If you're an American citizen in one of the other 49 states, then you'll be out of state, as will. And so out of state so covers really international the, the students. Here. Uh, it covers international yeah. students as well as uh, students from the USA who don't come from that particular state. All of this is based around um, the US's uh, federal structure, isn't it, uh, in that very that, much so. uh, each mm. state has its own tax uh, 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 requirements. Indeed, um, 
you know, a, a large number of the services offered are, are controlled at state level rather than at national level. Yes, indeed. Um, very often students, especially international students, they tend to overlook state universities and focus in on the big names, the ones they know and have heard about, you know, the Ivy Leagues we've just been talking about. Um, but if you are interested to see uh, the overall rankings in the United States, and we've done a podcast on rankings, of course, um, you can go and have a look at US News U.S. rankings, and there you'll see a list of universities, both state and private, and you'll see there right. are some very, very big names up there. State universities, exactly. Places like places like UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC Davis, UC Irvine, and then University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I mean, fantastic universities here. University of Virginia, Georgia Tech, Wisconsin at Madison, Texas A and M. And the list goes on and on. And these are really top universities, but they are state they universities. Are. They are. And so that and means that you will probably be paying less than you would if you went to a private university. And okay, so that was, the, that was the, the critical question yeah. that I was yeah. going to ask here is really, you know, okay, so we've got community colleges, um, obviously uh, a, a very, um, uh, you know, affordable option. Um and then public universities fit somewhere between uh, community colleges and private universities. Is that right? Uh, I would say they're probably closer to the private universities as that list that I've just uh, read out okay. indicates. Uh, um, it really depends from place to place, I would say. Um, but okay, in, in any examples of, you have? Of, well, yeah, in, in terms of tuition fees, um, I was curious to know, you know, what the range of tuition fees was, because clearly, as you rightly point out, the U.S. is a federal country and there are 50 states. So uh, each one has their own state university and, of course, their own tuition fees. So I right. found a very interesting website called College Tuition Compare. And in there, I did some digging around and I discovered that the State University of Vermont in New England has the highest tuition fees coming in around about $40,000 a year. Okay. And North, Dakota, North Dakota has the cheapest coming in about 12 and a half. There's a big difference. Remember, the, these numbers are for out-of-state tuition, which is what international students will pay. If you are lucky but, but, enough to live in one of those states, then it's less than half the cost. Well, okay. Um, yeah. I actually know a student who uh, um, studies at the North Dakota um, uh, State University, and uh, he seems to be receiving a really high-quality education there. Uh, and as you say, at a, at a, a really great price point. Um, so, so I think it's really worthwhile considering. Obviously, there's another aspect here, which is the cost of living in um, – uh, different states varies enormously as well, doesn't it? Uh, depending oh, on where yes. you're located. Yeah. Uh, perhaps I could just make one point before we move on to the cost of living. Um, in terms yeah. of, you mentioned the, the quality of education you receive. You shouldn't necessarily think that the more money you pay, the higher the quality of your uh, education is going to be because other factors right. kick in here, like how much taxpayers' money is being used to subsidize or fund the university. And this is a critical factor, but obviously that's uh, something for a, another day. But to, uh, to come back to this, the other costs of living, uh, no matter where you decide to go to university in whichever country, you're going to have tuition fees and the cost of living, things like housing, food, etc. And Neil, as you rightly say, I mean, some states are, are quite expensive. If you want to live in the middle of New York City, you're going to find it a lot more expensive than living in South Dakota, for example. Completely. Um, so you do need to dig around and have a look at this as well when you're calculating the total cost of your education in the United States. You do. And, and it really is, when you say more expensive, it's multiples more expensive, uh, <laughs> Yes, in my experience. Yes. Um, you're looking at... Uh, probably three times the cost uh, uh, of living, total cost of living if you choose, um, I don't know, LA or, or uh, um, if you choose New York as opposed to one of the uh, smaller, uh, less well-known locations. Um, uh, so something to bear in mind. Um, so we've done, we've covered public universities and community colleges. Uh, 
the 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 type of universities that are most well known to most uh, international students are, of course, the private universities. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we 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 just touched on those earlier on in this episode when when we mentioned the Ivy Leagues, um, but of course uh, there are only eight Ivy Leagues. You might have noticed, listeners, if you were paying particularly close attention, that I didn't mention Stanford in that list. Indeed. Technically speaking, Stanford is not actually one of the Ivy Leagues, but in reality, of course, most people uh, lump it into that particular. It's one of those quiz uh, trick questions, isn't it? (laughs) It Uh, is. uh, Very much so. For the million dollars um, (laughs) uh, that that, uh, rarely people get right. Indeed. It looks like we've just won that million dollars, Neil. Are we going to split it the usual, <laughs> the usual way? <laughs> <laughs> okay, back okay. to private universities. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. The, the, the Ivy Leagues, uh, we're going to do a separate podcast episode on the Ivy Leagues, but uh, we, we, we've already flagged up what they are. But I would just like to throw out a few more names at you. Private sure. universities, world-famous, top-class. I mean, MIT, for example, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And then, of course, we have Stanford, what we just mentioned, Boston University, um, Boston College, Caltech, University of Chicago, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Johns Hopkins, Northwestern, NYU. And there's just lots and lots and lots. And then, interestingly, there are, there are, some, there are some specialist universities, Embry-Riddle in Florida, for example, aerospace engineering. Then we have the Berkeley right. School of Music in Boston. RISD, which means Rhode Island School of Design, top art school, and many, many others. So a lot of top quality private institutions located around the United States. Indeed. But there's a price tag. Ah, there's always a price tag, yes. <laughs> um, I would say uh, if, if, if you are considering applying to the United States, or indeed anywhere, uh, the first question you have to ask is, Please, mum and dad, how much are you able to pay? Because there's no point applying to a university that costs $60,000 a year when they're only going to pay 20000 So that's your first step. Um, so right. and a very important step as well. It is. And, you know, I've heard, obviously, that there's a large amount of financial aid available in the U.S., which differentiates it from, from other countries. Um, can you can you give us a quick picture of how that works? What that is? Uh... Wow, financial aid, Neil. That's a massive topic. Um, it is, and we could indeed do a whole podcast on this. In fact, we actually have. We yeah, invited indeed. one of the world's one of the world's leading authorities on U.S. financial aid, Randy Venner, who works at the American University in Paris, and he made a very interesting podcast with us. Exactly. So. If you are interested to hear more about the ins and outs of financial aid, then please check out the podcast, Randy Venner. But if you could give American us a quick view, overview here. I mean, you always mention yeah, the sticker price against the real price. Yeah. yeah? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, um, the sticker price, of course, is the, the upfront price, uh, which you'll see, obviously, on the website. And the actual cost of study is the sticker price minus however much financial aid you manage to find. Um, okay. But financial aid is, as I just said, a big topic. Um, to sort of cut through to sort of the quick version, I would recommend if you are interested in knowing how much financial aid you could potentially get, go onto the university's website. They all have something called financial aid calculator. Ah. You sort of slot in some, some information, in your family's financial situation, and they'll give you a ballpark figure that you are likely to receive, you know, X thousand dollars of financial aid. It's just a starting point, but it's a very useful starting point in terms of narrowing down your search of which universities you could potentially apply to. Right. And, and um, you know, many, universe, uh, many students are put off, aren't they, from applying? You're even thinking about applying to American universities because of the perceived uh, high cost uh, should they be put up? No, they shouldn't. Um, it's a sad truth what you just said, Neil, especially amongst non-American students who are not so familiar sure. with the system in the United States. Um, there is a lot of financial aid out there. I mean, even for non-Americans, there's financial aid available. And it's absolutely worth checking out because 
nowadays with increasing costs in other countries like the UK, for example, it could work out yeah. cheaper for you to go to the United States and study, especially if you go to a state university or even some of the private universities. Uh, I was doing a, a course at Harvard University, um, a summer course there on college counseling, financial aid a few years ago. And the students who were looking after us group of college counselors uh, were doing what they call work study program. This means that right. the university guarantees them X thousand dollars a year and they have to do some work around the campus. And I was talking to one of the students, uh, we we're having a barbecue in the evening, and I asked her, why Harvard? I mean, it might sound like a dumb question because of course she was obviously a very bright young lady and had applied to other top Ivy Leagues. And she said, well, Harvard was the cheapest. Um, so Indeed. the financial aid package that Harvard offered her reduced the cost. I think at that time, Harvard was about $55,000 a year and right. she ended up paying 17. I mean, so you can do the arithmetic on that one and you can see $17,000 is actually very reasonable for tuition fees of pretty much any university, especially something right. as prestigious as Harvard. So the, right. the, there's a lot going on in this whole financial aid area is what I really like to say. Now, obviously, one of the critical decisions to be made here is selecting the course in the university. And, and we've covered uh, uh, this area in, in great detail, actually, in, in a couple of other podcasts. But I think it's really important to, to contextualize this process uh, within the context of uh, the USA. Um, could you help us with some guidance around the approach that students should take. You you said that students should start early, preferably even in grade 10, but how should they go about this? Well, I think uh, no matter where you're going to apply, uh, which country you're going to apply to, you really need to do some self-reflecting as to what your personal priorities are. Um, right. There are many aspects to this, of course, uh, both the academic and the whole sort of living experience environment. Uh, and a lot of students are understandably unsure as to what they want to study. And I think this is really where the United States comes to the fore. Um, the US has Indeed. a very flex, flexible system. Um, in fact, you don't even have to nominate your major, you know, the subject you intend on graduating in, on your application form if you don't wish to. You can go to a US college and you can take a range of different classes in different academic fields. Uh, because while you're there for the four years, you're going to mature as a person and as an academic student, you're going to be exposed to lots of new ideas, new professors, etc. And you will certainly find your way during those four years of your bachelor's degree. And then having found where your passion truly lies, you can then move forward into your master's program. To, to a more specialist field of study. And I think this is one of the huge advantages that the US offers students. So let me get this right. You, you can go to the university in, in the States without actually having a main focus area like, you know, I don't know engineering or, or history or whatever. That's correct. I mean, obviously, there are some specialist courses where you're going to have to focus on day one, but they're few and far between. Uh, most courses you will, as an undergraduate student, as a freshman student, you will go there as a first year and you will take a variety of classes, courses in right. different academic fields. Um, so in, in that respect, a lot of U.S. colleges are set up in uh, a rather similar system to the liberal arts and sciences program. Oh, okay. I mean, a liberal arts and sciences program is exactly that. You go and take several different subjects. And obviously your academic tutor, your academic advisor will sit down with you and put together a program so that you meet the graduation requirements in terms of sure. the credits that you earn. Um, but it is very flexible. And, and this is one of the beauties of the US system. It allows you to get a much broader education and also to sort of find your way. 
And a lot of students, right. when they're only they're only seventeen, when they're making their university applications, and understandably, it's very difficult to be sure that this particular major is what you want. And the U.S., of course, takes that stress away from you. You can go there and you can study lots of interesting different classes and find your way through. Right, and so with such a large choice, where should a student begin? Uh, yeah, uh, as I mentioned just now, a little bit of self-reflecting, um, some right. priorities. Um, the first one, of course, is what size of university do you want to go to? You know, 60,000 students or a small liberal arts school in rural New England with maybe five or 600 students. Um, there's there's yeah. everything on offer in the States. So you, you need to think about what you actually want. Um, geographical region, of course, it's a huge country. One student I was working with said he didn't want to go anywhere that was cold in the winter. Um, <laughs> exactly. So I suggested I know that Florida. <laughs> yes. Is that why you live in Canada, Neil? <laughs> Indeed. Oh, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But this particular student of mine, he was, uh, I suggested Florida, Southern California, or Hawaii. Uh, he didn't take my advice. He ended up going to uh, Michigan. And for those of you who oh, know Michigan, gosh. it can be a, a, a little chilly in the winter, to put it mildly. More so than a little set yourself chilly. some priorities about where you want to go. Indeed. And then, Indeed. of course, the it's academic really important. program's important. Yeah. Uh, no, of course, no without a doubt, academics are uh, probably yeah. number one. Um, mm. What else does a student need to consider? Um, well, the academic program, you need to make sure that they, they actually offer the majors and minors, the electives that you would like to study. Um, right. As I mentioned, uh, the size of the university, the location. And some universities are in the middle of a big city like New York, like Columbia University, for example, or they're in some nice, quiet rural campus, which is all nice and green, and the nearest town is several miles away. It's really a personal choice. Right, indeed. And, and, and yeah. other things like travel and, I don't know, maybe, maybe even a percentage of international students? Yes, both of those things are important. I mean, travel, of course, just check out where the nearest airport is. Uh, how often will you have to change planes to get there? Um, sure. But that's not, it's not really a big problem because you're not going to be flying back home every weekend. If you come from a country outside the U.S., it'll be too far away. No. Percentage of international students is an interesting one because some uh, U.S. colleges and universities very much serve their students from their own state or their own area. Um, right. It's probably, if, if you are an international student listening to this podcast episode, I would say you probably want to have a bit more of a mix uh, just because that's probably what you're used to in, in the school that you're currently attending. Um, and then, of course, career opportunities, uh, no matter where you're applying, you need to have a look on the university website and find out what sort of career service is on offer, how do they help you look for a new job, um, and crucially, what percentage of their students are employed within right. six months of graduating. Okay, the critical question for many uh, international students is how do I get into a competitive university, right? Quite, because if you're heading right. to the States, large numbers of our, of our listeners will be thinking, you know, I want to aim as high as I can do. And I want to get into somewhere that's going to really make a difference to my career long term. Um, how do you go about this? That's a very good point. I mean, yes, of course, uh, aim high. Um, but uh, Americans have an interesting take on this one. Um, they have a system called Reach, Target, and Safety Schools or Safety Universities. Okay, what's that? Uh, yeah, well, it basically means that you're going to have a mix between uh, the Reach universities are the ones who demand academic grades a little bit higher than you are currently performing at. The Target ones are those who demand grades around about your level. And the safety ones are those who want uh, grades a little bit lower than you've got. So it's quite a clever way to approach this task is to have a bit of a mix. Um, if right. you only apply to reach universities, you, of course, run the risk of not being accepted into any of them. 
And that's not a clever way to play the system. So reach, target, and safety is actually a, a good way to approach this task. Um, right. Now, in terms now, of, of – sorry, Neil. Yeah, go on. No, I was just saying, but you, you haven't really answered my critical question here. You know, you're the college counsel. I want I to go to Harvard. How do I do that? Come on, give me some answers. Uh, we, we we are coming on to it, but <laughs> in a somewhat <laughs> circuitous route, Neil, okay? I, I promise I, I will answer your questions because okay, I know you'll I'm come back and keep know. posing them if I, if I don't. <laughs> okay, okay. So uh, I was talking about the, the whole reach, target, and safety thing. This is sort of the, the framework in which we are going to reach out for that elite university. Now, how to find this information? Well, the College Board has a really good search engine. Uh, right. And you, you can have a look there uh, and basically start looking for universities and you can see what sort of academic grades they're looking for. One of the easiest ways to, to judge is what sort of SAT scores a university requires. Um, there, there'll be a range of scores on the university's own website. So you can have a look at those. Um, but I think that before I move on and attempt to answer your question, perhaps I could flag up a podcast that we made on this topic. Um, Anne Corrivo is the Director of International Admissions at Boston University. Ah, yes, and that's a great a podcast one. with us. And she really, really drills into all of this in great detail. And of course, she has decades of experience in working in exactly this area. Boston University, of course, is a very top university and, right. and really knows how to answer your question. Um, but in terms of me attempting to answer your question, Neil, I think if you really <laughs> want to go, go, yeah, I know, and I can't do it as well as Anne, <laughs> but I think that um, if you really want to go to a top university and, and you should aim high, um, you're going to have to First of all, take a rigorous academic program in your school. Uh, most international school students do. They'll be taking something like the IB diploma or, or something equivalent to that. You will need to get top grades in all of your subjects. Then you'll need to have top scores in your SAT tests. Um, for example, if you want to go somewhere like I know Harvard, somewhere like that, um, SAT is scored a uh, maximum of 1,600. You're probably looking at about 1580, something in that region. Okay. Um, so you just need to be, a, you need to be a very top student. Um, now, having established that you are intelligent, well-qualified, et cetera, et cetera, um, but you don't need to think that you're special because sadly, all of the applicants <laughs> are highly intelligent, well-qualified. And exactly. this, of course, is the problem, which is why I started to answer your question by talking about reach, target, and safety because you can't put all your eggs in one basket. We would like you right. to get into your dream university, be that a Ivy League or wherever, but you do actually have to have, if you like, a plan B or a backup. Now, in terms it's of so important, isn't it? Rates, it really is that. Yes. Um, you know, you have to now, understand that you, get, might it, be, it gets you might be one of the top 1% or even half a percent of the best, smartest people around. But unfortunately, the world is a very big place. And, uh, you know, even at the top 1%, you're talking of, uh, of uh, millions of people. And so it really is uh, important to uh, think about that uh, reach target safety uh, approach. Yes, I mean, uh, I've obviously worked with a lot of students, uh, very top students, uh, IB students, predicted 45 points, which is the maximum, and they've been rejected by many of these top schools, top universities right. in the US. Exactly. And that's Simply the harsh reality of this world. It is. It is. It's a harsh reality. But I, I would say this, that if you are one of those students listening to this uh, episode, um, obviously the Ivy Leagues are very desirable. Um, but as we indicated earlier, they are not the only top universities. No. They're not the only places where you will get a top-rate education, which will lead you on to a top career. Um, so you need to keep that thought in the back of your head. Um, now, we're finally going to get round to answering your question, Neil, about you know how can you maximise your chances of getting in, etc. Yeah, please. Um, there is there is something called early decision or early action. Um, what this means is, first of all, there is a November the first deadline. That's the first thing to realise. 
Secondly, right. early decision, uh, in most cases, you can only apply to one university. And if you are Hang on a minute, so, so slow down there, a second. Early decision, yeah. what does that mean? Is it a system? Is it a, uh, how, what is that? It is, yes. It, okay. It's part of the overall application system in the United States. Um, right. If you apply early decision, uh, as I was saying, you, in most cases, you're restricted to apply to just one one university. Okay. Uh, here comes the interesting part. The acceptance rates are higher. Uh, and I was having a look ah. at some of these, like Brown University, it's about 22% acceptance rate if you're on early decision, compared to only 9% if you go through the regular wow. application process. Um, Harvard, okay. it's about 14% as opposed to 5.5% through the regular. I mean, these numbers change a bit year to year, obviously. Sure. Uh, Yale, 17% through early decision, 7% through the regular. So this is a considerable advantage. But I would say this, that if you're going to go early decision, you do have to be aware that if you are offered a place, you are committed to going there. You have to sign something. Um, so you have to be very sure that this is actually the university for you. If you're unsure about it, then perhaps you'd be better off going through regular admissions, even though right. the acceptance rates are clearly more challenging. And looking at your list, I, I, one one location popped out. Cornell is actually a 25% or 26% uh, acceptance rate compared with 12%. So uh, in that case, it uh, makes a significant difference, doesn't it? It does. In, in, in fact, most, most of these universities I was looking at, um, the uh, admissions rate, acceptance rate through early decision is probably at least double, perhaps more. Right. Uh, and why is that? Why would, they, why would they take that approach? Well, um, from the university's perspective, of course, um, they, they know that, that they are going to be recruiting people who are very committed to their institution. Wow, this sort of also, bird in the hand begin... is worth two in the bush sort of thing. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and of course, they uh, they uh, get off to a head start in the whole recruitment process, which is competitive. Now, you might, you might be thinking, why would they worry their top universities? But remember, they are competing with each other for top students. Um, Indeed. It's not like they can just scoop up anybody that they want. Uh, so, for example, Brown might be looking at a particular student and maybe Cornell is looking at that same student. Um, Brilliant. So it, it, it does, it, it's a competitive environment is what I'm saying, and it does get them off to a head start. If they can start filling up their freshman class already in November, which is when the application deadline is for early decision, then, uh, yeah, things are moving forward for them, I would say. Now, Jeremy, one of your most important pieces of advice, the one you say almost in every episode, is start early. Um, we need to think about the application uh, process and deadlines now for U.S. universities. Um, when should a student start preparing for applying to the USA? You mentioned some students should be thinking about uh, looking at universities even in grade 10. Is that right? Some students and their families start even before that, Neil. Um, right. But I, I would say latest grade 10, uh, if you're going to apply to the United States, you need to sit down and you need to make a timeline of when you're going to take the SAT or ACT test. You can see right. the, uh, the test dates on those two websites. Um, because you'll probably want to take them when you're in grade 11. Uh, because remember, okay. you're going to be making your actual application at the beginning of grade 12. So you really want to have everything pretty okay. much done by the end of grade 11 in terms of the preparatory work, like taking any tests like SAT, writing college right. essays, all that sort of thing. And this is why we need to sort of push back this whole process. Um, so latest in grade 10, start looking and thinking. Uh, and certainly during grade 11, you need to have most of the preparatory work completed. Okay, understood. And uh, does every U.S. university require SATs? Uh, I think I remember reading that they're falling slowly out of favor. Is that right? 
Um, that is true. Um, of course, the whole COVID situation uh, really threw things up in the air. Um, but even before COVID struck, I would say that an increasing number of US colleges were making SAT and ACT optional. Um, and what does optional mean that, in this context? Uh, is it still beneficial? Not really, um, because because it's optional, it means that it doesn't really uh, play a role in the decision making process of the admissions uh, tutors. Okay, um, no, but I, th I think that I mean students will typically be applying to several different universities, some of which may be SAT optional, and others will still require SAT. Indeed. So, so in the end, you you're going to have to do it anyway. Yeah, for example, um, if you're going to be applying through the common app, uh, which we'll come on to in just a minute, you're going to be uploading sure. your SAT scores there. So the SAT optional universities will see them because they're right there, um, um, but they will just probably uh, disregard those or ignore them in, in, uh, in the sense that they want to create a level playing field. But if you're interested in finding out where the SAT optional universities are, just Google it, it'll pop up the various websites with updated lists. And it's, it's right. an ever growing list, I would say. Okay, so in grade 11, SOTs, being clear about the kind of places you want to apply to, uh, making sure that you're, you're ready for the application. In grade 12, then, you mentioned this is where, uh, this is the hard end of, uh, of, of the business when you make your application. Um, how does that process work? Well, of course, in grade 12, um, it'll all happen basically during the first semester of grade 12. Um, as we mentioned just now, if you're going to do early decision or early action, it'll be November the 1st deadline. And if you're going through regular admissions, then it'll be January the 1st. Now, right. of course, in reality, January the 1st falls during the winter break. So you're going to have to have all of this completed by, I would say, latest mid-December, preferably earlier. Um, so that's something to bear in mind. In, in terms of actually how you make the applications, um, there is something called the common app or common application. Right. You mentioned it and earlier. Yeah, it's very important. Uh, you create an account, you do a lot of form filling, and you're going to nominate what they call recommenders, it would be your college counselor plus two teachers. Right. And then the Common App will then send an email to those people, inviting them to log in and upload supporting documents like a transcript, a recommendation letter, etc. Now, when all of this information is uploaded, your your stuff and the college council and teacher stuff, then you, the student, you have control over it. And with a Dropbox, right. you can then send this application to any of the U.S. universities. Um, that are listed. Incidentally, there are a few non-US ones on Common App now, like St. Andrews ah. in Scotland, for example. Interesting development. However, it let's is. just focus on the United States for the moment. Um, now, you can then send your application out. Remember, you're going to have to write essay or essays for each college you apply to. Um, we actually made a a podcast on this episode, but okay. So the, 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 the tip here is don't apply to too many simply because the workload is going to be enormous. If you're writing all these essays and you do right. need to perform well in your school academic program. So it, if you think carefully about where you want to go and set yourself some priorities, you don't need to be applying to 20 or 30 universities. It's, it's far too many. Plus the fact you're going to have to pay an application fee, to each and every college you apply to. And if you apply to 20, that could really add up to some serious money. So there's a lot of Good. things to consider here. Okay, and let's get down um, so to the deadline. The... So we have, we have um, early action, November the 1st. Regular admissions you mentioned is January the 1st. When do students hear back from the universities typically? Perhaps just before I, I dig into that, Neil, I, I wanted to also mention that in addition to the Common App, there are some uh, universities that are not members of the Common App. Ah, yes. And if you want to apply to one of those universities, you just go directly onto the university's website. And it's a very similar process. You create an account, you do some form filling, your college counselor uploads transcripts, recommendations, etc. So very similar, but you just do it directly through the university's own website. 
Right. You okay, mentioned that back there are, there, yeah. Sorry, you, you mentioned that there yeah. were 600 universities on the Common App. And earlier in the podcast, you uh, mentioned that um, there were 4,000 possible uh, higher education institutions. So uh, I can see that there are quite a few uh, who aren't represented in the Common App. Anyway, let's get back to the reply okay. date. When, when do students yeah. typically hear back from the universities? Well, what will happen is uh, you'll turn your application in. Let's let's say you're doing regular admissions. You, you, right. you get everything done by January the 1st. Okay. And then um, the universities will be processing these applications and they will give you an offer of a place or not, as the case may be, um, before March the 31st, midnight. Now, okay. a lot of them, of course, will, will come in before that date. But March the 31st is when they're going to have it done. And then the month of April, you have a chance to think about which one you want to accept. And that is why candidates reply date is May the 1st. And on this date or earlier, you have to commit to a particular university. And you probably have to pay a deposit and sign lots of paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. And this is really an important date. So don't miss right. candidates reply date. Okay. Understood. Um, and are these offers uh, conditional, like in the UK? Usually not. Um, there may be a conditional condition on uh, English language requirement if you're not a native speaker of English. Uh, but right. that's pretty much it. Um, unlike the UK, you'll be offered a place. Um, wow. Most universities will expect you to maintain your current a grade average, the one that you've uh, indicated on your application. Um, but I think you, you would have to really sink very, very long way down in your final school exams for them to reconsider the offer of a place. So I don't think you as a, as a listener or an applicant need to be too concerned about that. Just as long as you continue to work normally for the remainder of grade 12, you'll be okay. Okay. So that offers uh a level of security that certainly um, the UK's um, uh, conditional place offer uh, system doesn't, which is great. Yeah, it is actually, yes, because uh, you as an applicant or a student will know for sure that you are going to university or going to college in the US as soon as that yeah. offer comes through. Which yeah, that's really, reassuring. really reassuring, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah. For many students, uh, it takes the pressure off uh, the exams and probably allows them to perform even better than they would have done. Yeah, or else they just skip off school. You never see them again. But no, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's called senior. I don't think you should be planting that idea. Uh, I know, uh, no, no, please, listeners, don't do this. It's it's much better to finish up your school uh, career on a high note and get Indeed. some good grades. Because who knows when you might need them in the future. It's certainly true. You mentioned uh, English language proficiency tests uh, as being probably the only thing that uh, um, the offer is conditional on. Um, are they are they the, the standard set of uh, proficiency tests that many students will know? Yes, they are. Things like TOEFL, IELTS, Cambridge proficiency, etc., um, it does sometimes happen that a U.S. college will um, write to a student and, and, and demand one of these when the student is clearly a native speaker of English. They do right. occasionally get, get this wrong. Um, what I would suggest you do if you're in that position, ask your college counselor to write a letter to the college explaining the situation. And in almost all cases, the university will recognize that they've made an error and they will they will just uh, delete the English language proficiency requirement. For, for IB students, um, where English uh, is a required subject, uh, I suppose that's easier. If you're doing UK A-levels, perhaps it's a little bit more complex if you haven't got uh, English listed as one of your three or four subjects uh, uh, for, for the uh, A-levels, I guess. Well, it, it normally comes down to what is the language of your school. Right. If your school is an English medium school, irrespective of whether you're actually taking A-level English, um, the fact is you are studying 24-7 in English 
and have probably been doing that for a large chunk of your life. You just need to ask your college counselor to write that in a letter and send it off to the university. You've got a place, you're going. Um, then along come all of the practical logistics side of, of, of moving. Um, probably the most important one or the one that you need to think about first is housing. Is that right? Yes, indeed. It's a very, very important part of your university experience. Um, you, as a first year student in the United States, will be living in the dorm or dormitory. Right. And this will, be, this will be your home from home. And this is where you get to meet people and bond with the other students. Um, the people that you share the room with or, or the dorm with become almost like your surrogate family. Um, right. most, uh, un most undergraduate students in the U.S. tend to stay in dormitories on the campus for the whole four years of their okay. university experience. Although so you, that's, you're not that's different you're not to, large to other locations. It's a little bit different, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, it depends on availability, numbers of students, number, numbers of rooms, but that's a fairly common scenario, I would say. Now, as a man who's grown up uh, watching um, a fair few um, university college uh teen movies um with uh with my kids and i i know that uh, one of the big questions that are asked is, is you know, do i have to share uh, because often you know the movies are showing uh students sharing uh rooms and and all of those things how is it actually organized uh, uh this dorm housing yeah, sharing a room is, is commonplace. I mean, there are a few single rooms, but most students share a room. And the university housing office try and match students with, with you know, like-minded uh, roommates. For example, right. if you're the sort of person that likes to go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, it's not a good idea if you're sharing a room with someone who likes to party all night and go to bed at 4 o'clock in the morning. So they try and match people who have similar sort of sleep patterns, work patterns, lifestyles, if you like. Um, and, yeah, and so, so that's quite an important thing. Most of these would be shared rooms with with a bathroom or is the bathroom on the hall? Um, how does, how does you know, generally, how does it work? It's a very mixed picture. And certainly the, the newer dormitories tend to have ensuite bathrooms, toilets, etc. Um, sometimes uh, I, I was actually staying in one on one of my many visits to U.S. universities. It was quite an interesting uh, concept or layout. It was like a little mini apartment. There was a, a living room. Right. Off that living room were two bedrooms, single individual bedrooms. There was like a little sort of kitchen corner where you could prepare food. And then okay. there was a door that led through to a, a shared toilet shower bathroom area and at the other end of this shared toilet bathroom area was another door that ah. led into another identical apartment okay. so you basically had these two apartments sharing this sort of one toilet shower area now right. what you had to do was you had to remember that obviously when you went in there you wanted to lock the door on the other so side you lock you locked the door to the other apartment and, but you had to remember to unlock it again when you went back into your apartment. Otherwise, the other guys couldn't get to use the, to use the toilet. And, yeah. and guess who forgot? Yeah. You, <laughs> of course. Yeah, so, no, luck, luckily, the guy in the other apartment had my cell phone number, so he called me. <laughs> so dorm, uh, dorm setups are normal, and they, they um, do facilitate, as you mentioned, um, you know, building bonds, making friends, lifelong friends. Um, sometimes uh, can be a little bit challenging, especially if you're coming from abroad. Um, uh, but it's the way that uh, US education is generally structured. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yes. Okay. Um, and I, th and I think it's... Uh, I, wanted to say, I was it's just going to go on to the most important uh, subject in my head. I keep on, you know, because my stomach's rumbling. We're recording this in the morning. Uh, the important subject of food, um, you know, uh, do students need to cook their own food? They, they don't need to. They, they have the opportunity to, the sort of kitchens where students can prepare their own food. Um, but there are things called meal plans. Um, I think we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast episode that 
the United States is famous for many things and fast food is definitely one of them. Um, you can eat anywhere and everywhere in the US. Right. But if you're on a campus, then you will either have a, a swipe card that you can charge up or nowadays you can just pay on your phone or your credit card. Um, there are cafeterias all over campus. You really won't have any problem at all in finding food. We um, have spoken to a fair few universities in the States uh, who actually sort of almost require that you take on the meal plan um, mm -hmm. because it's, uh, you know, the main way that they uh, uh, ensure that students are, are cared for. Um, is that uh, a fair picture uh, of, of um, generally how things are organized? I would say it is, yes. Uh, I know that in some countries, cooking for yourself is probably the predominant way yeah. the students uh, feed themselves. But I think in the United States, yeah, the, the meal plan, eating in the cafeterias on, on campus is uh, definitely the, the way to go for most students. And if you um, come from, I don't know, a different uh, background, a different culture, a different location, obviously food tastes vary widely. Um, do these do these uh, cafeterias sort of meet a, a wide and diverse sort of palette? They do indeed. I mean, an increasing mm. number of students have particular dietary needs, like they might uh, yeah. be vegetarian or vegan, uh, and uh, certainly U.S. colleges are are very sensitive to to these these needs. You can get lots of different types of cuisine. I mean, if you're from Asia, for example, you'll have no trouble at all in finding Asian food. I was uh, working once in, in China, giving some workshops there, and the students all asked me the same question. Can we get Chinese food in the United States? <laughs> so I stifled a smile and I said, you can get every type of food in the United States in large Completely. quantities. And Completely. with that answer, these Chinese students were, were, were pacified and they started to go and fill out the application form. So yes, there's everything available for you. Okay. and. Uh... You know, you always have a, a top tip around uh, housing um, that I think it's important we share here as well. What is that top tip? Yes, top tip is the best housing goes early. So you yeah. need to get in there quickly. Thus, you'll have so, more choice and hopefully the room of your dreams. Yeah, and, you know, um, early action um, obviously is uh, beneficial there for those students who take that route because you've got a jump start not just on getting your your uh, place but also in terms of housing yes indeed i mean as soon as you commit to a university you can start negotiating with the housing office so sooner the better the um other big issue that we need to address here uh, at least superficially, of visas um, and the ability to work. Uh, these are sort of intertwined. Um, it's a complex area, I know, and uh, but it's a very important topic. Could you provide us with a quick overview of, of both of those areas, you know, securing a student visa, what that looks like, but also generally, you know, what, it, what uh, working looks like for students in... Um, in the USA? Yes. Um, if you are going to go and study in the United States and you're not a US citizen, then you'll be there on an F1 student visa. Right. And this allows you to remain in the US for 60 days after graduation. And if you okay. plan on staying there longer, then you're going to have to apply for a new visa. So that's the first thing to realize. Um, then in terms of work, um, you can, generally speaking, work on campus for up to 20 hours a week if you're on an F1 student visa right. um, and 40 hours a week when uh, during the university holiday period. Um, right. You will also be issued with a Social Security number. This is very, very important in the United States because these Social Security cards track a person's earnings over the whole life. I mean, you may not want to stay in the U.S. for the whole of your life, but you will nevertheless have one of these cards. Um, right. In terms of actually getting a visa, um, then the, the university will guide you and advise you on paperwork you need to submit in order to get the visa it's a it's a fairly straightforward process the process works um but 
you should realize that as in most bureaucratic processes, it does take a little while. And so don't leave it to the last minute because you can't actually travel to the United States until you get your visa. You can't just go there on a tourist visa and then start studying and think you'll get your F1 student visa later on. You have to get it all organized before your course starts. And that's a very important point to realize. It really is important. And, um, you know, many students uh, are used to sort of traveling around the world with their families and don't understand that uh, uh, when you go as a, an international student, your, uh, uh, your status uh, is different and you need to make sure that you tick all of the boxes. Um, one of the things that I know is making sure that you've got all of the paperwork uh, in place uh, so that you actually submit uh, 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 the documentation in the required manner. Um, and the submission process varies depending on your physical location. Is that right? Yes, it does. I mean, very often you'll be doing it through the local uh, U.S. embassy or consulate in your home country. But you do need to check on this. Um, I, I would say that the, the best way, if you have any questions about this process, contact your university or college because they right. have an office full of experts whose job it is to guide you through this process and answer those questions. And that's, that's such good advice because the university, of course, it's in their interest to support you to make sure you're there on time and that things are going well. Um, let's now move across to the work uh, side. You mentioned that, that uh, your visa will usually allow you to work on campus um, uh, for a number of hours. Does, does it always allow you to work uh, outside of campus, uh, so in the local town or in the community or, or whatever? Or does that vary uh, depending on, on um, the visa and or uh, where you come from? It varies, actually, depending on the visa. Um, I would suggest that you have a, a very careful look at the small print on your visa to see what you are actually allowed to do and, and not allowed to do in terms of work. Right. And I think this particular area is critical uh, when you're considering going to the USA, because what that means is the conditions attached to work are decided at the visa level. Uh, and typically you would have already accepted a place uh, uh, before you get your visa, which means that students who are planning to make money to pay for their uh, university perhaps uh, need to be careful here. They do. Um, but I, th I think also that some students are planning on staying and working in the United States after they finish their degree. There is something, something called the optional practical training visa, which will let you stay on for 12 months or 24 months, depending. Um, right. but that, of course, is you know, a little bit further forward in the future. Um, but I think that in terms of actually working while you are an undergraduate student, um, I mean, we mentioned this figure of 20 hours a week. I mean, realistically speaking, if you're going to be studying properly and doing a good job with your academic program, I, I don't think you're going to have more time than that to devote to a job um, because otherwise you might find your job takes up too much of your time and you can't do your so, academic program properly. Uh, obviously, that's a, a personal call, judgment call, but you do need to think about that. <laughs> Wow, that's a, a big one. And we've covered an awful lot. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Um, before we finish, um, could you give us a, a few you know, reminders or, or top tips on, on uh, the best way to approach studying in the USA? Absolutely. Uh, we sort of touched on this whole idea of, of making a timeline, making a plan, and starting in grade 10, planning uh, and researching and preparing for your SAT or ACT tests. And then right. in grade 11, you'll actually take the SAT or ACT. Um, you'll be working on your college essays. You'll be you know, finalizing your short list of colleges you're going to apply to so that when you come back at the beginning of grade 12, you're actually able to make your college applications. And so that's the approximate timeline you need to be working towards. Right. Now, and we've, we've of, um... We've created a, a range of um, different episodes, haven't we, uh, to support students on this journey. 
Um, yes, we have. Uh, you mentioned Randy's uh, on financial aid. That's certainly one that people should take a look at. Are there any more that pop to mind? Yeah, the one I flagged up before, Anne Corivo from Boston University on applying and studying in the United States. Uh, and of course, a lot of information about Boston University itself there. And then we made one on selecting the right university or college, you know, general tips, things to think about. Um, another one uh, we've made on SAT and ACT testing. Right. And possibly one that, that, that may interest some of our listeners um, who want an American-style education. There are many American universities with campuses in Europe. Um, so we made a podcast episode on this particular topic called American Universities in Europe. And we also have a separate uh, spotlight podcast, Marist University. Right, indeed. Um, they're headquartered in New York State, but they have... Uh, um, a campus in Florence, and Joe Giacomi uh, did a very good podcast on this. So, Maris University podcast, also Florida International University, and and obviously we'll be adding to this list as we go forward. We will, and the best place to find this is in our Spotify playlists. Um, we have one specifically designed around studying in the universities uh, in the USA, um, and so if you're interested in sort of uh, uh, getting hold of the curated list of all of these episodes, then just pop over to Spotify and put in uh, Find Your Best Future uh, podcasts and, and USA, and, and the playlist will, will uh, pop up. Uh, the playlists are really powerful because as we grow, and we've been growing a lot uh, recently, um, they allow you to really focus in on a specific area. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the in the episode, um, it's morning, so I, I guess it's not sushi for breakfast. Perhaps it is. <laughs> no, no, Neil. I, I've already had my breakfast. That's why my stomach wasn't rumbling when yours was. Um, <laughs> I always kick off the day with with some healthy muesli with chopped. Oh chocolate. God! Here we go. Yeah. Healthy muesli. Uh, no. Well, if, it, if, it, if it's very cold outside, I'll have porridge. I mean, reverting to my Scottish ancestry there. But today it's quite mild, so it was a healthy muesli day. How about you? Fantastic. No, I've, I'm actually, you know, I'm in Bavaria. I'm in southern Germany right now. And so uh, uh, inevitably it's uh, bread, cheese, and lots of delicious uh -huh. um, speck and sausages uh, that are waiting for me. Um, unfortunately, um, they're very delicious, but they do have a negative impact on your waistline. So um, I'm going to need to be cautious in this regard because uh, otherwise my trousers won't be fitting. Thank you so much again, Jeremy. We'll look forward to the next episode and uh, have a great day. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share the Find Your Best Future podcast.